right, if you have a Bible with you, open it up to Colossians chapter 3. If you don't, you can grab one of the pew Bibles in front of you. We're going to be on page 1045. Uh, as always this morning, if you have questions about the text or anything that you'd like uh, us to interact with, you can text those in to our text line, and uh, we'll take a look at those at the end of the message this morning. I'm going to pray for us one more time, and we'll get going. Lord God, we are um, historically have been called the people of the book, and uh, it's because we um, recognize that our framework for life comes through uh, this series of texts that your Holy Spirit has um, divinely inspired and brought together for us to learn from and to place ourselves under. Uh, and sometimes that's really simple and really easy and straightforward, and sometimes uh, it's difficult. And, um, and I, just, I pray for pray for grace in our hearts this morning as we work through some um, challenging things. And God, I pray that um, you'd give us hearts to understand. You'd give me words to speak. And uh, may we be drawn closer to you through our study this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So sometimes I, uh, I get complimented by people uh, and they say, just so glad that Revelation Church teaches the Bible. And they say it in a way like, like that's a weird thing. And, and I, I grant that there, there are a lot of churches that don't, but there are also a lot of churches in this town that do teach the Bible really faithfully. So I'd want to say that. But I also have a lot of pastor friends who, rather than like, walking through books of scripture like we t usually do. They, they're more of the like three or four week series people. And uh, I don't want to be critical of that. They have the reasons for that. On a, on a Sunday like this, it is tempting to just do a three-week series on joy and not actually keep going through the text of scripture. Because when you get, when you, when you commit to going through a book of the Bible, you, you kind of have to do it all, or people notice, right? <laughs> so <laughs> we're, we're getting to this section in Colossians that is really out of sync with our culture's values, and for a couple different reasons. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take two weeks to go through this section of Colossians. Uh, we're going to talk about husbands and wives this week. We're going to talk about children and fathers and slaves and masters next week. And I want to be really careful this morning, as careful as I know how, to help us find the mind of Christ in this text um, over and against uh, maybe the church experience we grew up with, or maybe against the experience that our culture is telling us is appropriate. And, and, and both of those things are potential tension points for us here. Paul's main concern in this text, as he's been going through, starting with the, the beginning of Colossians and just exalting the goodness and greatness of Christ, the preeminence of Christ, how good Jesus is, and then shifting into a, because of how good Jesus is, this is the kind of people that we're meant to be. He gets a little more specific in our text by taking a look at specific household relationships that would have been well-known in the first century and, and placing his ethic for what it looks like to live a life that looks like Jesus onto those household relationships. And his concern is that those household relationships would shape us into the image of Christ and that they would also reflect Jesus's countercultural love to those that see us acting those relationships out. So, I want to give you guys some context first before we get into the text itself. Paul is doing something that his audience would have known really well. This section of Colossians um, scholars call it a household code. 
And there's a few places in scripture where uh, authors of the New Testament kind of lay out, this is how different members of a household should behave. And this would have been common in the first century. It stems probably from Aristotle. Aristotle said the family is the basic unit of the state. And um, if you want to have a healthy society, a healthy state, you need to have healthy families. And so Aristotle posited what it would look like to have a healthy family and that would ratchet up to a healthy state. And he talked about marriage and he talked about children and he talked about slaves. And of course, we're a little shocked about slaves because we are pretty confident that slavery is wrong. And, and, and I think we'll talk about that next week. Uh, and we have a history of uh, really awful treatment of African-Americans in this country and this legacy of slavery. And so there's a disconnect there. But in the first century, slavery was just the way things were. It wasn't based on race or ethnicity. It was just certain classes of people, whether you were uh, poor or you were captured in war, or there were a variety of reasons why you could become a slave. There was just slavery. It was a reality. And so there would be a home that was run by someone called the pater familias, the head of the household, the, the father of the family. And he would have responsibility over a wife, some children, and most likely, if they were a family of means, a group of slaves. And so Aristotle lays out the authority the father has over his home. And the, in Greek and Roman society, the father had absolute authority over his home. He could... Um, he, he wielded the sword literally over his children and his slaves. He could have them killed if he didn't like them. And as we read secular Greco-Roman household codes, there's a couple things that stand out as significant. And one of them is they're always addressed to men. Men are the only people in the room that Aristotle and other Roman leaders care about. They address people in power and they instruct them about how to wield their power over those under them. But what we find out when we start looking at the biblical household codes, including the one this morning, is that these are somewhat countercultural in what they tell us to do. They aren't meant to cement worldly power, but instead to transform it into something else. Douglas Moo writes about this. He says, the concern in the secular codes was usually effective household management, especially since the household was typically viewed as a key building block of society and of the state. Accordingly, the focus of the codes was on the pater familias, the head of household, and what he should do to maintain order and decorum in his household. Referring to a husband's love for his wife would not fit this purpose, and indeed no other code we have discovered from the ancient world requires husbands to love their wives. So first off, that we, if, you, if you are putting yourself in the shoes of the Colossians, they're very familiar with this household code and how the, the head of the household has authority over those under him. And right off the bat when we read that husbands are to love their wives, the church at Colossae gets a little uncomfortable because that's not, that's not how their cultural has, cultural has taught them to behave. And some people will be critical of the household codes and they'll say things like, um, this is just the Bible being a product of its culture, that, that there's this Greco-Roman culture and since Paul is using this formula, he's just um, giving in to the culture of his day. Of course, Paul would say these sorts of things because that's the world he lived in. But I think what we're seeing instead is something radically different than what the culture was used to. N.T. Wright says it this way, it is in fact extremely unlikely that Paul, having warned the young Christians against conforming their lives to the present world, would now require just that of them after all. We just got done earlier talking about the elements of the world and, and not pursuing the elements of the world and the, and the philosophies of the world and instead having a different view of culture and society that's based on Christ. And so Wright is saying, like, if, if Paul is, is just now turning that whole ethic off and just submitting to what the culture is already putting on the Christians, that seems unlikely. So when we place this code, this household code, into the context of the letter of the Colossians, what stands out? A couple things. 
This passage, however we approach it, needs to have a very Jesus-oriented flavor. Last week, we looked at verse 17, which said, whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to to God the Father through him. And the very next verse is these household codes. And so Paul is saying in the context of everything you do, being for Christ, live your life this way. Aristotle would have said that the codes are for the purpose of an orderly society, but Paul says that they are an expression of allegiance to Christ. Paul refers to the Lord three different places in this section to make his appeal. He's not not appealing to the order of society. He's not appealing to the um, stability of the government. He's appealing to Jesus when he gives us instruction because ultimately Jesus is the Lord of the Christian household. And secondly, we recognize that these codes are addressed to the whole church. This is something that maybe you don't see, first of all, because again, we have this very individualistic way of reading the text. But when the letter came to the church at Colossae, the whole church was assembled just like we are today. And it would have been a read out loud to everyone. Paul is speaking in a united way to the whole congregation. And unlike normal household codes, which would have just been instructions for men, these codes speak to women, children, and slaves because they are in the room and Paul gives them agency. This is, again, would have been unheard of in the first century environment, that Wives, children, and slaves had any say, had any agency, had any ability to choose to do anything would have been absurd. But Paul speaks specifically to these social classes. And the other thing to recognize is while everyone hearing these codes in the church would have been Christians, their partner in each of these instructions might not be. It could be that a wife has a non-Christian husband. It could be that a husband has a non-Christian wife. It could be that teenage or young adult children have become Christians and their parents haven't. It could be that you are a slave in Colossae and you found Jesus, but your master worships the Greek gods. Or you're a master in the church and your slaves are not Christians. And so Paul brings the ethics of the kingdom of God to bear in the lives of the believers at Colossae on some potentially really difficult situations. So we're going to get into this. We're just going to do a couple of verses today. And we're going to start with wives. Verse 18, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So a couple things that I want to point out about this. This is, this is an instruction that Paul is giving to Christian wives. He's not giving this instruction to women in general. And he's not giving this instruction to women about men in general. There's a kind of hyper-detailed patriarchal view of gender that some in the church have adopted that creates really broad categories of submission and authority for men and women, and it's outside the bounds, I believe, of this text and Scripture more broadly. Um, there, is, there are certain um, leaders in our, um, in our faith that would say that uh, women should not be police officers. Women should not hold government office. Um, There's even one very famous uh, pastor who has this very detailed framework for how a woman can come under the godly authority of a man when he is lost and is asking her directions. And it's bizarre, honestly. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about a singular relationship between a husband and a wife. And the instruction from Paul is to submit. What does submit mean? Submit means to voluntarily put yourself under someone else. Paul is asking the wives, remember, he's giving them agency in this text to make the choice to be submissive, however we end up defining that, to their husbands. 
Scott McKnight comments, he says, in our text, the emphasis is on the wife's choice to order herself toward her husband. And again, this directive is to wives toward their specific husbands, not all husbands, not all men. And again, this, is, this, this just drives right into a really tense moment in our culture, right? The submission, especially between genders, is not a topic that gets a lot of positive press. I was speaking with a woman a number of weeks ago, and, and she was um, saying that she did not believe that she was called to submit to anyone but Christ, But the reality is we are all called as Christians to put ourselves under the authority of others. All believers are to submit to God in Hebrews and James, to God's law in Romans. The church as a whole is to submit to Christ in Ephesians. The Jewish people are called to submit to God's righteousness in Romans. All humans are are called to submit to the governing authorities in Romans and Titus and 1 Peter. Christians are called to submit to their leaders in 1 Corinthians. Slaves are called to submit to masters in Titus and 1 Peter. Young men are called to submit to older men in 1 Peter. Children are called to submit to their parents in Luke. And all Christians are called to submit to one another in Ephesians. And so this, this idea of, of putting yourself under someone is a, is, has a cultural um, like negativity built into it. But the reality is if we are followers of Christ, we are all in a position of submission to someone somehow. So Paul is talking to wives about something that he expects them to do for or toward their husbands. But here's another thing to be clear on. He's not giving husbands the authority to put their wives into submission. And in a fairly conservative, historically evangelical church who's probably kind of worked through some of these things in the past, if you've been a Christian for a while, if, if you're in a marriage relationship and as a husband, you're using texts like this to wield power over your wife, you need to stop it. Paul's not talking to you. He's talking to her. The BDN of Wale says, submission is a voluntary decision to put yourself under the leadership of another with a respectful heart. And another thing to, to, to look at in this text is wives are called to submit themselves to their husbands, but they're not called to obey like children and slaves. It's a different word. Paul is differentiating the relationship that husbands and wives have from the relationship that he details for children and slaves. Husbands, your wife is not your child. She is not called to be obedient to you. She is your equal. She is your necessary help. All the way back in Genesis 2, we read, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. And if you were with us uh, last year when we were in that section of Genesis, I talked about how Adam functionally could not fulfill his purpose without Eve. Adam has deficiencies in him that Eve fulfills. And Paul says, wives, you're you're called to submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So there's, there's two ways to understand this word fitting in the Lord. First of all, submission is fitting in that it is a posture of heart that looks like Jesus. Jesus himself models submission to his father. Submission is designed to direct the heart of a husband towards Jesus. Peter talks about this in his letter. He says, in the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. Some of the Christian women in Colossae might have had non-Christian husbands. Maybe they had uh, Christian husbands that just really weren't leading their family. They weren't living up to their calling as men. They weren't um, growing spiritually. They were delegating or, or relegating those responsibilities to their responsibilities to their wives. And wives, it's it's easy to think, well, I need to step over him, belittle him nag him, 
<laughs> and that's going to get him to follow Jesus. <laughs> it's, it's not. It is fitting, Paul says, to model Christ to your husband. But it is also fitting in that your submission as a wife is only applicable when it is in alignment with the way of Jesus. Wives, the one you are ultimately submitted to is Christ, and there is no circumstance in which you are to forsake Christ in order to submit to your husband. A husband that is directing you or your family into something that you don't think is good for their flourishing or is unsettling your conscience or is outright sin, pump the brakes on that. There's no call here to just unilaterally, again, give over your agency to a husband that is not walking with Christ. We all good? Super uncomfortable? (laughs) Let's move on to husbands. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. So what are the husbands called to do? They're called to love. (laughs) McKnight again says this, it needs to be noted again that the husband is not instructed to lead his wife, but to love her sacrificially. Husbands, love your wives. The word love is agape. That's the same kind of love that we see over and over and over again as being displayed by God and embodied by Christ. Husbands, your role as you love your wife is to put her needs and by extension your family's needs above your own. There is a radical call to Christ-likeness in this passage that would have made the Colossians uncomfortable. All of you uh, women who maybe are feeling tension about the idea of submission, in the first century, it would be all of the husbands in the room that are feeling the tension of love. What do you mean I'm called to love my wife? I've never been told that before. My culture says I have no obligation to love my wife. And Paul says, actually you do. In Christ, your whole orientation towards your wife has been changed. Again, uh, I read this earlier, but Doug Moo says, no other code we have discovered from the ancient world requires husbands to love their wives. And this is really important because husbands, it should make you uncomfortable that the example of love that you are called to, not just in general, but in a specific way toward a specific person that you've covenanted your life to, is Christ. That should freak us out a little bit. That that that's the model that we've been called to follow. Michelle Lee Barnwell, in her book, Neither Complementarian Nor Algalitarian, says... A closer look at the cultural context reveals that while Paul was aware of the expectations, he does not conform to them, but rather subverts the traditional order by describing an ethic that asks the head to act in a socially shameful and dishonoring way. That is the way of the cross. If you were here with us last week, we talked about how humility was not a virtue in Roman society and how to have to, for Paul to make it a virtue was incredibly countercultural. And he's doing the same thing here by c- connecting the role of the husband, the head of the household, to Jesus. He is asking husbands to behave in a way that would have been culturally shameful, to go to the baths or the games or whatever and talk about how sa- you are sacrificially laying down your will for the sake of your wife would have caused you to be mocked by all your guy friends. Men, we are called... We are called explicitly to the way of Jesus. And while I do not see it in our church, praise God, in the wider Christian culture, there is often a macho, chauvinistic kind of masculine nonsense that we import into things like this, and it really has no place among us. 
to BDN Boile again, says, a hard man is an immature man and often an insecure man, but a soft man who can take blows and return kindness, who can build others up, that's a real man. So this is our call as husbands this morning to imitate the character of Christ in our marriages. And Paul goes on, he says, don't be bitter towards them. And this could be, don't be bitter in your attitude towards your wife or in your wife's experience of you. Why, why does Paul bring out bitterness? Uh, in, in the Old Testament book of Ruth, there's, there's lots of examples of this word throughout Scripture, but I think this is a, a, an appropriate one. Naomi has um, lost her husband and her two sons. She's a widow and she's destitute, and she says, my life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Naomi's life hadn't turned out like she wanted it to. Her expectations were not met. And that's what cultivated bitterness in her heart. I've, I forget why, uh, but for a while, a number of months ago, we had grapefruit juice in our refrigerator. And uh, grapefruit juice is fun because it looks like orange juice, but it's also like bright pink. And I like it. But I had a glass of grapefruit juice and my nine-year-old Nora had never had grapefruit juice before. And she saw my glass of grapefruit juice and she thought, that looks pretty awesome. And so she took a big swig of my grapefruit juice and she went, ah, that's so disgusting. You know, why? Because it's bitter. And why did she react that way? Because it did not meet her expectations. She saw it and she thought, this is what this is going to be like. This experience is going to be sweet and fun. And it was not those things. It was bitter. Husbands, your marriage will not meet your expectations. Your wife will disappoint you. And that could go both ways, right? Wives, it doesn't meet my expectations either. Yes, but why husbands? See, in the first century, wives were bound to marital fidelity. They could be executed for marital unfaithfulness. But men had access to all of the mistresses and prostitutes and slave girls that they wanted. See, in Paul's day, if a man wasn't happy in his marriage, he'd just go anywhere else he wants and get his needs met, sexual or otherwise. And today, in general, in my experience, caveat, 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 husbands have more freedom and proclivity to be led away from their marriage covenant by the enemy due to unmet expectations. Now, in this church anyway, it's more likely that men are going to be working outside the home. It's more likely that men are going to be uh, using and potentially addicted to pornography. And husbands, if your wife isn't meeting your expectations emotionally or sexually or whatever, you have options. You have opportunities. And that, that's true with the wives as well, but I would guess that it's probably more of an issue with husbands. You can find someone else to meet those expectations for you. And Paul says, hey, marriage isn't going to meet your expectations. Don't let your heart get bitter. Be faithful to your wife. In the in a parallel passage in the book of Ephesians, Paul wrote Ephesians and Colossians about the same time. He says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. How does Jesus love the church? He lays down his life for her, knowing that she will not meet his expectations. 
knowing that she will consistently wander and fail him. David Powell comments on this passage, if the love of one's wife reflects the general glorious love that Christ has for his people, the bitterness that some may show to their wives will reflect the rejection of that love. That's a sobering thought. If you have grown bitter towards your wife, if your unmet expectations have created a coldness or an outright hostility in your relationship, Powell is arguing that you are not living a life that is experiencing the love of Christ towards you. Not because Christ has rejected you, but because you have functionally rejected Christ. So we have these two words to husbands and wives, and both groups have work to do. Husbands, this should feel sobering to us. I want, I want you to hear me challenging us to lead out in our role, to love our wives sacrificially, extravagantly, creatively, to the, put the needs of our families out in front of our own comforts, our own desires, our own hobbies, our own passions. And additionally, to love our wives in a way that she recognizes as love. Um, my if you've, ever, if you've ever looked into like love languages, my love language is gifts. If you ask my wife, I am a fantastic gift giver. I'm, I'm, I don't even care that that's bragging. I'm just, I'm really good at it. Um, but my wife's love language is words of affirmation. So I will get her an amazing gift and she'll be like, oh, that's nice. But she doesn't really know that I love her unless I tell her a lot. And it seems as though that's a never-ending well of affirmation, which I'm learning to be better about. We're almost 20 years in, and I think I'm getting into a rhythm. But if I was like, well, pfft, <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the statement that I remember is like, I told you I loved you the day we got married, and if it ever changes, I'll let you know. This is not the way it works in my house. Because... She recognizes my love for her a certain way, and it's up to me to be a student of my wife and pursue her and learn what it is that she needs from me to feel loved. And that's work, husbands. And it's a good work that you're all called to. And wives, some of you need to begin to trust your husbands in this area. And I can't speak to everyone's situation, but maybe he's broken trust in some way. And, and there's, a, there's a process. Maybe it's a long process of getting that trust back. Maybe as a, as a human being, you're just a really capable person. And you've never thought about laying down some responsibilities for your family and giving them over to your husband to lead. It might be that you need to show him that you respect him enough to let him lead in some areas that you are concerned about giving up control in. It might be that he just doesn't lead in your family because you just take care of it. Lucy Pepiat, who is a um, New Testament scholar, says this about these household codes. She says, a woman finding herself married to a Christian man in one of Paul's churches, like a Gentile or a slave, should have had the disorientating experience of being treated as an equal. Not only this, but unlike many of the pagan husbands around them, she would find that her husband had committed himself to be faithful, binding himself to her for life in covenant love, loving her as he loves his own body, recognizing her gifts and potential as a co-heir of the grace of life, and working to see all of that fulfilled in an analogous fashion to the way we are nurtured and empowered by Christ, who above all is Savior. So there is this vision of the marriage relationship that Paul is painting that is completely countercultural to his day and is designed to represent the love of God both to each of the spouses and also to the wider culture to be a testimony of Christ's love for his church in the world. What could possibly go wrong? I want to talk about some pitfalls here that we need to talk through. 
The first one is we live in a completely different cultural context. It is impossible for us to map these instructions directly onto our lives. We aren't patriarchal in the way we organize our families. There is no pater familias that has absolute authority in, in our homes. We have moved far from the gender roles of the first century. So the first thing I want to say is this, this is what this doesn't look like. And that's 1950s suburban America. There's this weird thing in the church where we decided that this period of time from like the 1950s to the 1960s, 10 years, maybe 20 years if you stretch it, is like the divinely appointed uh, ideal for what marriages are supposed to look like. And if you've ever watched Leave it to Beaver or Mad Men, you know what I'm talking about. And the thing is, is that's the only time that husband and wife relationships have ever looked like that in the history of humanity. It's a weird thing to make your model. So, so there's, there's questions about like, well, should, should men be the breadwinners and women stay home? It depends. Men and women have both worked to provide for their families for thousands of years together. And sometimes that's looked like both men and women staying home and tending the farm. Sometimes that's looked like men leaving the home and, and, and earning a living somewhere and bringing money in and the wife keeping the home. But the thing is, what does it look like in your home? That's, that's between the two of you. Who should handle the money? Well, who's better with money? Who likes spreadsheets? That's the person that should do that. Who should do the cooking? Who's a better cook? It's heartbreaking to be in a situation where one spouse is a great cook and likes to cook, but they feel like the other spouse has to do all of the cooking. So then you just get angry people and bad food. Who does the household chores? Those are, those are really silly categories that we assign gender to. When I got married, I didn't know that men were supposed to take out the trash. I thought everybody took out the trash equally. But my wife told me, no, the husband takes out the trash, which, again, I, you learn a lot when you get married. Um, <laughs> but then, you know, and also men are supposed to mow the lawn, I think except when I make my daughter do it. Who does the laundry? Who does the dishes? Who mops the floor? None of that matters. That's not hardwired into the text of Scripture. As a couple running a family together, you figure it out based on who is better at those things and who it makes more sense to accomplish them. So don't, don't think of maybe the way your parents did it, or the way you see it done on TV as the biblical foundation for how to run your household together. The second thing that I would point out is that marriage is really hard, isn't it? I think happy marriages have many moments of really beautiful connection, but it's hard to live up close and personal with another sinful person. And what Paul says is the time and energy you spend growing in your relationship with Christ will bear fruit in your marriage. Even if only one of you does it, and ideally you're in a marriage where two people are pursuing Christ together, but if you find yourself in a marriage where it's unequal in that way, pursue Christ anyway. And it will change your marriage. Tish Harrison Warren wrote in the New York Times a couple weeks ago about her marriage, and she uh, got some advice from an older couple. She said, there are times in marriage when the Bible's call to love your enemies and the call to love your spouse are the same call. And that's, the truth of that is really, really profound because we're never off the hook to love, are we? We're always called to love, and especially the people that we're closely connected to, continue to love them. 
And then a quote from John Chrysostom, because he's my favorite guy now. From being loved, the wife too becomes loving. And from her being submissive, the husband learns to yield. And again, this is really important. We have callings from God to interact with each other in a certain way. And when we focus on those things and we do those things, it will change us and it will probably change our spouse. If we both focus on our calling from God for the glory of God, we will both be changed. So let's talk about authority. I haven't used the the word authority much because it's not in this text. Paul's not primarily concerned with authority here. But I believe that we get a lot of insight into marriage from the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve has, have the original perfect marriage. Michelle Lee Barnwell again says, if God commissioned Adam to promote unity of the marriage, which I believe he did, then it is difficult to imagine that authority would be a main characteristic of his responsibility since power relationships tend to separate rather than create intimacy. At the same time, because Adam has a particular role in regard to the unity with Eve and the need for obedience to God's direct command, it it is also difficult to see their relationship as primarily one of functional equality. And what she is saying there is that we have these categories in the 21st century of how relational dynamics work, and we impress them upon the scriptures. And what Barnwell says is like, it doesn't seem like those categories really work very well in the account of Genesis, because there are clues in the text which seem to indicate that Adam has a priority and a responsibility to lead the relationship, that he has an accountability towards God that is different than Eve. But it also seems really clear that Adam and Eve are equals, partners in ruling and reigning over the earth. And so we can't easily map a bunch of hierarchical structures to that relationship. But here's what I believe personally, and and obviously you don't have to. At the end of the day, I believe that I will be held accountable for the health of my marriage and the flourishing of my wife and children in a way that Joanna will not. And we are quick to make that about power dynamics. And I want to resist that impulse because I don't think it's present in the text. Who has the power in the church's relationship to Christ? Jesus does. How does he exercise that power? By sacrificing himself for his people. On the other hand, though, Submission isn't really submission until you actually disagree on something, is it? Everyone knows the engaged couple or the newlyweds that never have an argument. Just so sweet. They just love each other so much, and you just think, give it time. We went a couple years in my marriage, and I thought our marriage was perfect because I always got my way in everything. It was just because my wife didn't have the guts to stand up to me. And she's, she's found them. <laughs> and so now, now our marriage, we fight a lot more. I, <laughs> and that's a good thing. Uh, not the fighting, the, the agency. But here's some thoughts on, on disagreement. When you are in a marriage relationship and you come to disagreement Make sure you thoroughly discuss the issue and understand the person's perspective. Husbands, you got married because you needed help. In some sense, your marriage is an admission that you cannot do it on your own. So listen to the perspective of your wife. Take it really seriously, more seriously than any other person's counsel and just assume she's probably right about a lot of things. And additionally, most of the time, I'll just say, do what your wife wants to do. 
And I don't say that in kind of like happy wife, happy life kind of way. But most of the time when we argue in a marriage, it's over stupid stuff, if we're honest. And if if I can recognize that the thing that I'm fighting with my wife about is dumb, it's my job to sacrifice my desires for her flourishing. And occasionally, though, there's going to be a big decision that you just can't agree on. And I think there's a helpful framework here about authority. There's, there's two kinds of authority, the authority of command and the authority of counsel. There are three offices in the church that have the authority of command. The church. The church gathered, the members of the body of Christ have what uh, Scripture calls the keys of the kingdom, and they can excommunicate members of the church. If you are a part of this community and you decide to live in unrepentant sin and betray your allegiance to Jesus, we can revoke your membership as the body of Christ. We have the authority of command. The government, in Romans 13, we read that the government has the power of the sword. The government can make us do things, and if we don't do things, they can kill us. And all of their other commands stem from the fact that they have that, those teeth to their power. Parents. Parents have what the Bible calls the rod. We won't get into that today. We'll talk about that next week. When my children disobey, I can ground them. I can take away my daughter's cell phone. I can uh, cut out their privileges. We have power as parents to exercise our authority. But there's two offices in Scripture that do not have the authority of command. They have the authority of counsel. And the first one is the office of the elders. The elders of the church, we do not have the authority to excommunicate. That's that's an authority that's given to the body of Christ. Our authority comes from our ability to persuade. That's why if you look at the qualifications for elders, one of the things that elders need to be able to do is to teach. Because any authority that we have in the church comes from our ability to convince the church of the direction that we should go. We do not have the authority to command the church. And husbands also have been given the authority of counsel. Husbands, you do not have the authority to command your wife, your equal, to do anything. You have the privilege of loving her like Jesus enough that she is persuaded to follow you. And so when there is a big decision and you're in disagreement, take time to pray and listen and talk and consider. It is worth coming to a mutual consensus on. But if she won't follow you, you can't make her. She is your equal, not your subordinate. And wives, when there is an intractable disagreement, I would encourage you to express trust to God by extending trust to your husband. Choose to believe that he desires to love you well through his decision and then support him in it. And personally, like I, I, we, we came to a decision a number of years ago that we disagreed strongly on. And we talked and, and came to heads, and it was, it was probably the most um, volatile disagreement we'd ever gotten in. And at, at one point, Joanna finally said, okay, well, it's on you to make this decision. So you make it. And I made it. And it was terrible. It was a bad decision. It was not good for our family. And I had to own that. I had to own that I was wrong, that I had been given the responsibility to make the decision, that I had listened to the counsel of my wife and ignored her, and that I was responsible for the consequences. 
So let's, let's talk about something a little darker. Let's talk about abuse. Many people today will argue that understanding this text in the way that I have shared it this morning is inherently misogynistic, it's inherently demeaning to women, and that it will lead to abuse if it's not inherently abusive already. Some of the scholars that I've quoted this morning would agree with that perspective. And that's not an unwarranted concern. The church has often used these texts in the scriptures to allow for abuse from husbands and to require wives to endure it in the name of submission. And that is wicked. Spousal abuse can be physical, it can be sexual, it can be verbal, it can be emotional, it can be spiritual. And when any of those things are taking place, the wrong advice is wives should submit. A husband who abuses his wife for any reason, and especially when they're using the scriptures to justify it, is betraying his marriage vows and is living in explicit sin. In the section on slaves, I think this verse is appropriate in Colossians 3.25. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. God cares about justice, and he will repay the person that abuses in relationship. And I I would say that at this point that all abuse should be brought before the leaders of the church. And criminal abuse should be reported to the police. Kathy Keller writes in her and her husband Tim's book, The Meaning of Marriage, if he beats her, the strong help that a wife should exercise is to love and forgive him in her heart, but have him arrested. It is never kind or loving to anyone to make it easy for him or her to do wrong. A husband who abuses his wife in any way is not loving her as Christ loved the church, and he is derelict in his duties. Most abuse abuse victims are women. And in a discussion of submission, this comes up, right? But men are also abused in marriage and in the church, either because of cultural stereotypes or a call to continually sacrificially love, This is used to encourage men to tolerate abuse as well. And this is equally sinful behavior by an abusive wife, and it needs to be called out as sin and dealt with. And we're not going to get into the specifics of it, but I would say that persistent abuse can be grounds for divorce. If you're interested in learning more about that, David Instone Brewer's work on how the Old Testament should inform our understanding of divorce is helpful. An abusive husband is failing to live up to his marriage covenant to provide for the needs of his wife, and his abuse amounts to neglect and falls within the bounds of a biblically sanctioned divorce. That decision is not something that anyone should enter into lightly, but if that's a situation that you find yourself in, I would highly encourage you to seek pastoral guidance. And if there's criminal activity going on, call the police. So lastly, this morning, I want to talk to the singles in the room. I think most of us are married, but not all of us. Sometimes you come to church and it's a marriage sermon. It's like, what did I even come for? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord so that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I'm saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper and so that you may devote, be devoted to the Lord without distraction. Oftentimes in the church, we elevate marriage as the ideal situation for human flourishing. Some of you people who are single maybe are frustrated when the topic comes up. When are you going to get married? When are you going to meet someone? Or maybe you just feel it inside that like, all my friends are married and I'm not. And what's wrong with me? Paul does the exact opposite of this in 1 Corinthians. He encourages people to remain single because of the freedom they have to pursue Christ. 
And this is worth single people pondering deeply because Paul's instructions to wives and husbands are a burden. They are a good burden. The marriage covenant is a beautiful thing, but they do inhibit you from certain kinds of service. If I'm going to live out my sacrificial call to my wife, I will be prevented from doing other things in the name of the Lord. My wife is going to joyfully submit to my leadership. She is going to be prevented from doing other things that she might like to do. Specifically, single women in the scriptures, Phoebe, Nympha, Lydia, Chloe, all likely ran their own households. It might have been that some of them had non-Christian husbands, but likely not all of them. It's more likely that some of them were independent women householders. And that is a calling that Paul lifts up as noble and good. So for those of you that are unmarried, count the costs of being married because there is one. So that's part one of the household codes. It's Paul's practical outworking of what being reborn into new creations in Christ looks like in the marriage relationship. It's about becoming a person that looks like Jesus and reflecting the character of Christ in relationships inside and outside the church. We're going to talk about children and parents, masters and slaves next week. I've heard the phone click a few times. We'll take some questions in a minute. And many of you are probably in disagreement with me and how I'm reading this text at some point or another. And, and that's okay. This text is perfect. My understanding of it is not. So study it. Take time. Spend, with, spend time with it. Pray about these things and, and ask the Lord to teach you. If you're married, talk to your spouse about it. Let's take a look at these questions. Let's see. Both men and women receive a radical call to die to themselves in order to experience and give the love of Christ and model his way in the world. Why is that women specifically receive the call to submission and men to love? Is there an ordering leadership structure that is alluded to here within the family model? Yeah, I think I, I, think I mentioned this briefly. Um, I think there is. I don't think, um, I don't think it's probably as strong as some people would like it to be, but Throughout the Christian scriptures, uh, Jesus and the apostles, when they teach on marriage consistently, not in this passage explicitly, but consistently refer back to Genesis. And Genesis is the institution of the marriage relationship. And there's a lot of disagreement there because we don't get a lot of detail in the text. And scholars disagree in a thousand different ways about what they're reading there. But it does seem like in the creation story of Adam and Eve, Adam is given a role to play. And he's given Eve to make up for his weaknesses as his uh, suitable helper is what the Hebrew says. And we see that in several places. We see the command given to Adam. And we see the consequences given out to Adam. God approaches the man in the sin first. And then later in the New Testament, when Paul reflects on this, he says that our sin is due to Adam. And that doesn't mean that, that Eve was like, you know, just a, a, an un... Um, an unsuspecting bystander. She sins in a specific way in that text as well. But when God brings it up to them as a family, he puts the burden of the consequences on Adam. And I think that's significant. Um, I think, that, I think that, that doesn't say so much about power, 
as it does about responsibility. And I think there is a sense in which a Christian husband is responsible to God for his family in a way that his wife will not be held accountable. How that gets worked out on a marriage-by-marriage basis, I think there's a lot of flexibility in that. Um, But like I said, that's, that's my conviction about my own marriage. And I think that is borne out in the text. Next question. Does the view of these exhortations as contractual, if you fulfill your responsibilities, I will fulfill mine, versus a covenant change the ease or even the effectiveness of living them out? Yeah, I think so. So there's, there's a lot of debate about what marriage is. Is, is marriage a contract where there's, there's two sets of uh, demands that are being met, or is it a covenant where people enter into it regardless of the demands being met? And I think there's elements of both probably historically, um, but I think the covenant language is much more helpful, especially when we recognize that we live in a culture where marriage is very easily discarded when it gets difficult. And again, not to say that there aren't biblical grounds for divorce and, and, and dissolving a marriage that, is, um, that cannot be healed, But most of the time, our posture as married people should be, I'm in it for life. I'm in it for the long term. I'm in it regardless of how the other person reciprocates. Because if you go into the marriage with your list of demands and assume that the other person is there to meet them, you will be disappointed. And that opens the door for bitterness and neglect and all kinds of other sinful things. And if we are people that are focusing not, not exactly on the health of our marriages, but in how we are imaging our Savior in our marriages, we recognize that whether we're husbands or wives, we're both called to be people that we are not naturally for the benefit of the other and for the glory of Christ. And so I think covenant language is really helpful in discerning your posture towards your spouse. Okay, there were a couple other questions, but then they said disregard. So if I'm misunderstanding that, um, uh, oh, actually, there's just one more. Here we go. Uh, Do I think Paul is drawing from Aristotle or Moses? Well, I think I think that's probably just a yes. there's, um, there's really good evidence that what Paul is doing is he is modeling the framework of his discussion off of a framework that was created by Aristotle and was propagated by Greco-Roman thinkers for hundreds of years. And so the, the form that he's using is very clearly connected to Aristotle. The content of his instruction I would argue, is probably more in line with Moses and then specifically Moses through Christ because he is a Pharisaical Jew and that's the background that he is coming from. One more and then we'll be done. Do you have a biblical definition of masculinity and femininity? Not really. There are very few things that you can point to in the scriptures that say men are supposed to be like this and women are supposed to be like that. If you find one, um, you can easily find a passage somewhere else that says the other gender is supposed to be the same way. There's a verse in, uh, in Corinthians, I think, where, where Paul says he encourages the church to act like men, but he tells everybody to do that. The men and women are gathered together. Um, we just got done talking about all of these virtues that maybe, maybe our culture would say are feminine virtues of gentleness and grace and humility. And those are virtues that Jesus has. And he is the ultimate man, right? All of us as men should live up to who Jesus is. And he embodies both what we would consider masculine traits and feminine traits. And, and the, the problem with that as a set of categories is they're constantly changing. 
depending on the culture you're in and the time period you're in and even the city and, 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 and subculture in that city that you belong to, what is masculine and what is feminine, just change. And so I've come to the conclusion that in general, there are very few, if any, things that are explicitly told to women or explicitly told to men as far as the kinds of people that they should be. And I think practically that opens up just a lot of freedom in your marriage relationship to love each other well and to work out of your strengths. So, we're going to take communion like we always do. That was a long one. It was a hard one. Thanks for sticking with me. Like I said, the household codes are, direct, are addressed to the entire church gathered. All of these social categories that come together once a week to eat from the same table, united in Christ. And we are called by Jesus into this one singular body, united under his broken body and his shed blood. And I just encourage you this morning, don't take that for granted. Recognize the privilege that we all have to participate with our family in Christ in receiving the grace of God through the communion meal together. And so take the bread and the cup and recognize that Jesus' broken body and his shed blood is uniting you in a special way to this community, his body. Um, If you want to um, pray away from your seat, you can come to the front and use the prayer rugs if you'd like. And we're just going to sing together um, as we share communion with one another. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.